Hi, welcome back to AR Zone. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. These continuing interviews on intersectional veganism and related issues are in association with VegFest UK. In today's interview, Roger and I will be joined by two very special guests, Svetlana Chibariva and Laura Slifer. Svetlana is a pro-intersectional vegan with an interest in looking at veganism as a political and ethical philosophy through a critical lens in order to challenge current narratives in mainstream veganism. She was born in Stalingrad, a city recovering from the atrocities of Nazi occupation during World War II. She grew up with relatives, family, friends and members of the local community who experienced the horrors of concentration camps as well as medical experimentation under fascism. Laura is a Jewish American who's been researching the deep interconnections between animal exploitation, eugenics, Nazism and animal rights as part of a book she's working on, Liberating Veganism, How Dominance and Control Issues Are Sabotaging the Movement and How to Free Ourselves for Vegan Publishers. She also gave a talk relating to these themes at VegFest UK earlier this year. Svetlana and Laura are joining us today to speak about Holocaust and genocide analogies in animal advocacy and about the type of advocacy that can turn marginalised groups away from the animal movement. Thanks for joining us today and welcome to AR Zone. Thank you so much for having me. There, hi Caroline, thanks for having me. You're both so welcome. I wanted to begin our conversation today with a little background. Last week in Australia, there was a protest in which signs were held that have sparked a lot of discussion. The signs said different species, same atrocity, with two pictures, one of Nazi soldiers at the top and of police officers at the bottom. It said genocide is genocide at the bottom of the picture. It, it was a clear comparison of animal agriculture to the Nazi Holocaust. There's a lot to unpack with this type of thing. The basic fact that mass breeding is obviously not something one does when committing genocide highlights the carelessness of a sign like this. But there's so much more involved. Svetlana, would you please begin today by explaining to our listeners your reaction to this type of advocacy? I've got some notes here, so I'm just going to uh, read from what I've got. Um, I think when making comparisons, um, the memes, uh, the, like the one that was used or images, uh, are often equating, uh, not just making parallels or similarities, but pointing out similarities, but equating and decontextualizing the experiences as well as the, uh, you know, some of the motives of, uh, of the individuals involved and responsible for both uh, atrocities. So I think the first point to make would be to highlight the fact that, you know, non-human animals are exploited for many reasons and, you, you know, many different ways, which are, you know, mainly, mainly consumables, but also in entertainment, etc. And um, I think this the comparisons and the, uh, the equation that comes in is, uh, it reduces the experiences to just mainly one of the many facets of non-human animal exploitation by, you know, branding under a certain name. Um, and a lot of activists in the mainstream, I think, who don't have any connection to the Holocaust or even, you know, the horrors of the fascist regime in Europe during World War II, um, like to compare numbers, saying that, you know, more animals die during one week or something along those lines and then saying that, you know, non-human animals are the most impressed and this is worse than what happens to humans. And, you know, this essentially not only erases the experiences and stories of individuals in both atrocities um, by turning them into numbers and painting their suffering 
with the same brush, but um, it also results in using one oppressive narrative to somehow tackle another, which you know it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you can't really fight oppression with abuse of privilege or more oppression. You know, um, selective yeah. compa- compassion isn't simply going to make more uh, you know new vegans. You know, another interesting point to note is that um, you know despite the fact, despite the fact that numerous members of the um, vegan and non-vegan community um, they've raised the damaging and the counterproductive nature of this type of advocacy and you know not just within the context of the holocaust but you know also the through the use of you know sexism and ableism racism etc and they've been met with this defensive vitriol and basically silenced you know tone police and once again you know even by their own community who apparently are you know the voice for the oppressed we see a lot of or personally i see quite a few um maybe a couple of videos and a few articles which circulate on social media on, you know, on rotation, like every year uh, of a small group of Holocaust survivors who speak about their own experiences and how these, once again, from their own individual experiences, remind them of their trauma. And, you know, they draw the parallels that they personally see. Um, You know, at no point do I recall them, you know, saying that one is worse than the other. You know, the point that's usually kind of driven is that both humans and non-human animals um, have the capacity to suffer and that we should be raising the voices of all victims of systemic oppression. You know, the image comparisons we see online take their stories out of context and mm-hmm. they reframe them from a privileged lens of someone not affected by this trauma. So, you know, despite all these raised points, these activists defend the use of these images by cherry-picking which survivor they want to use based on, you know, how well they support their own prejudice or, like, how they can use their words on the matter. And, you know, for me, this is a classic example of confirmation bias. Even if the particular survivors who are used did draw comparisons, which is in their rights and, you know, not in the right of those who have no such experiences, you know, six or so individuals don't represent the experiences of millions uh, of others who are impacted of this um, by this atrocity. So... Um, I think that's also really important to note the fact that you can't just pick whatever, whoever you want, uh, you know, to and ignore the other um, individuals who, you know, do have experiences or can relate to this um, just because you want to prove a point, you know. And, and another common justification given by certain vegans to use the Holocaust comparison, I think is problematic, is the literal dictionary definition of the word Holocaust which is, um, I'll just read it. So, destruction or slaughter on a mass scale, especially caused by fire or nuclear war. So, this is also, you know, inaccurate in the reference to what happens to animals. But, you know, even Google over here just states underneath, um, and uh, I'll read again, the mass murder of Jews under the German Nazi regime during the period of 1941 to 45. More than 6 million European Jews, as well as members of other persecuted um, groups, were murdered at concentration camps such as Auschwitz, now the Holocaust with a capital H. I mean, when you try to deflect to dictionary definitions when discussing trauma experienced by a group of people, you really can't, you know, you're grasping at straws by trying to dictate to victims of an oppression you have never experienced what they should or shouldn't feel. Uh, the reason why comparing uh, what happened during World War II to what happens to animals is especially detrimental, I think, is because oppressed groups of humans, um, they don't have the rights of privileged humans, and so they are dehumanized, just as non-human animals are chasing you know, equality and 
uh, autonomy, you know, provided by the political identity of a human. And I, I think I know you've had Carol J. Adams on your show before. Um, and Carol J. Adams, um, she explains uh, that, you know, there are various ways in which non-human animals and human animal struggles actually interact. You know, she states that there is a humanized human, the white man, the animalized human, anyone who doesn't fit into, you know, the privilege of this uh, of this identity, the animal, uh, the humanized animal who receives some of the rights of a human, uh, the animalized woman, and then the animalized animal who doesn't have any rights. So essentially, when people um, draw comparisons between the struggles of any oppressed human minority to uh, those of non-human animals, they are ignoring the fact that these struggles are striving uh, towards a common goal, you know, despite being different, of course, but um, and also I, I know that AFCO discusses this at length when talking about the use of slavery comparisons by mainstream white vegan community. But you know, even if we were to put this theory aside, um, if we just discussed and focus on the trauma level, you know, there's a lot of people living today who still live with the ingrained trauma from what happened during World War II. And I think a lot of vegans forget that the, the animal rights movement is led by allies, you know, humans who belong to the oppressive group in the framework of speciesism. So when we advocate to non-vegans who don't share our privileges, you know, whatever they may be in the given context, um, we're not going to advocate for justice effectively, um, in my opinion, by telling them to, you know, get over it and silencing them and telling them what they, you know, should and shouldn't feel. Because, I mean, that, to me, that doesn't make any sense. How do we expect people struggling to survive being told to get over it and join a movement that's supposed to be about compassion? You know, how can our compassion be selective? Whether, you know, these individuals like it or not, the animal rights movement is a social justice movement and speciesism, speciesism is not separate from the web of oppression. So I think if we ignore this, um, we're in fact contributing to the systems which allow, you know, speciesism to continue. The phrase, you know, we see a lot of vegans using the phrase for the animals, um, you know, as for me, like I think at one stage, you know, it was something that was a pledge to altruism. But, you know, I feel now it's it, it's a scapegoat from a lot of social responsibility. So we see this term being used to defend a lot of bigotry in the movement. You know, it's almost, it's also like, I don't know, it's for me, it's extremely paternalistic. I mean, um, the vegans that use this kind of uh, phrase, they're assuming that they, you know, they know best what the animals want them to do, you know, as if they've spoken to them and, you know, this is some kind of plan, grand plan that, that we have to, to liberate them, you know. But um, I think if we can agree that, you know, the animals obviously don't want to be killed and, you know, they deserve the same rights to live as, as, as a human would. But um, we can probably make a better assumption, of, you know, and that's, you know, if the animals could understand the complex layers of social oppression, they would want activists to do whatever is the most effective, which is, uh, for me, is striving for total liberation. Um, these systems don't exist in a vacuum. You know, if we want to build a, a successful conscious movement, um, we should be inclusive of other minorities and uh, recognize their struggles as being important in the uh, in the bigger picture. Um, I still struggle to understand how individuals who insist that other people recognize their complicity in being an oppressor through speciesism and raise, you know, the point of cognitive dissonance, uh, which is a favorite catchphrase I see um, in a lot of advocacy. Um, you know, they refuse to acknowledge their own complicity in other forms of oppression and avoid accountability. So, you know, we don't have to use oppressive narratives of privilege in our advocacy. Um, it's possible to make the point that 
you know, what we do to non-human animals is morally and ethically wrong without throwing a whole community of people under the bus and, you know, in the process, uh, process possibly, you know, causing them to turn away. Um, and just one, one last point I'll mention. So when I was having these kind of discussions um, in online spaces recently um, about the this particular image that was put out uh, in relation to, the, you know, the protest in Melbourne, there was a comment made by someone who basically said, like, oh, you're just drunk on ideology and, you know, you're species and you should learn something from this or, you know, something to that effect. Frankly, I'm not sure what I can learn from being divisive and participating in, you know, in this kind of uh, thinking. But I think learning from minorities is crucial work in advocacy. Um, uh, secondly, the ideology they refer to, I believe, is sociology or the study of society. And, you know, it, this is studied, like, this, this is taught in universities. But um, the fact that the person who made the comments is, was under the impression that they themselves don't follow an ideology, I think suggests that they think that the way they perceive these issues is, you know, in the right or the true form. And uh, for me, it's like very concerning. Dr. Melanie Joy, uh, she makes a lot of this um, kind of points in her in her work. Um, you know, she points out that, for example, non-vegans say that vegans force their ideology on others and they themselves, you know, obviously allude that they don't have one. Um, in fact, I think she highlights that carnism is so successful because it, it was unnamed and invisible, you know, part of the so-called wasting zao or normal, you know. So the harmful narratives which, are, you know, we see repeated in our advocacy, I think they reinforce um, institutionalised systems like racism and sexism and ableism, you know, which are the dominant or what's, you know, called normal, the way things are. And I think participating in them is very problematic. For me, good intentions simply aren't good enough because, you know, as the saying goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So I don't believe this kind of ignorance has a place in our movement. And I personally, you know, when I saw the picture being posted online, I thought, you know, this was, this is once again a step back in the way that we advocate for, you know, justice as a whole, not just for the animals, but this is probably something that we can definitely improve on. I think you made some excellent points there, Svetlana. Thank you so much. One particular point that I just wanted to quickly pick up on, which I completely agree with you about, is that you mentioned that we're the only movement who don't have the oppressed themselves leading the movement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that brings with it some some really big issues. I mean, who are we as advocates? Who are we accountable to? Yeah. We can do and say basically whatever we want to with the excuse of, oh, well, it's for the animals. Yeah. And I, right. and I think that's, that's where a lot of this stems from. We can basically mm -hmm. be as thoughtless and as careless as mm -hmm. we want, as we want to. And, and, who is there to hold us accountable? I really want to respond to that. I was like chomping at the bit when you were talking. <laughs> because, <laughs> I, was like, I just went for it. I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to say it. Like I've got all these points I want to mention. I'm just going to get them out. <laughs> um, yeah, because I was thinking actually about an incident that happened that was also quite controversial in the U.S. Uh, with animal rights protesters going to a fur shop in Detroit, I don't know if you guys heard about this, but it was kind of making the rounds as well. And um, 
it was a black um, shop manager and a crowd of mostly white, with the exception of one black guy, um, protesters. It was a very, very antagonistic. You know, there was basically a lot of kind of debate surrounding this issue of should animal rights activists take into consideration the dynamics of a confrontation like that in the current political climate and really ongoing, always political climate, but especially right now in the U.S. with all of this racial animosity and hostility and um, police brutality and everything else, you know, should those things actually be taken into consideration. Obviously, I feel very strongly that they should be taken into consideration, you know, because context is always so important in so many ways of, uh, number one, um, making an effective action, and number two, not actually adding to and reinforcing forms of oppression through your activism. Um, But this issue of the animals themselves not being present, I was actually writing an essay about this in response to this action in the U.S., and I was thinking very specifically about that because I was thinking about Carol Adams, uh, you know, when she talks about the absent referent, and of course Mm -hmm. the absent referent in this case being the animals, and I was thinking, well, if it had been, let's say, a herd of animals confronting that shop, would the reaction have been different? I have a feeling it would have been, you know, because then they would have had to have answered to the actual animals saying, you know, these are the skins of our loved ones hanging in your shop. How do you face me and speak to that? And that would set up a whole different dynamic than a group of people who 99% of were from the oppressor group, not the oppressed group, confronting a black shop owner, you know, or shop manager in Detroit, which is predominantly black, which is being gentrified, you know, by white people coming in. You know, the dynamics are completely different than if it is the actual oppressed speaking. I think that's an enormous point. Yeah, good, good point. Yeah. I just I want to add to that that you know I've read something on the on the fact that you know fur companies specifically actually target you know people of color to sell their products so you know this is actually specifically targeted this is racially targeted you know um, the fact that you know they believe that an oppressed minority should be you know buying the skins of another oppressed minority and this is another whole problem altogether you know i think that's that's also quite problematic so there's a lot of context there which is missed by i think people who just don't they don't analyze or they might not even have a wish to analyze in that way because they come from a a perspective of you know privilege and the fact that they've never had to you know Right. And of course, that complicates things for them and it makes it harder for them. And right. they don't want all of that hassle. Why are you making this about race? You know? Yeah, right. They're inconvenience, you know, it's an inconvenience yeah. for them, you know. And yeah, I think that's also really it's an interesting point to raise. Going back to kind of some of the stuff that were said earlier. First of all, I wanted to respond to your point. Carolyn, about breeding, (laughs) because actually, so you said mass breeding is not a part of genocide. That is not always true. (laughs) In the specific example of the Nazi Holocaust, actually breeding was a huge part of it. 
And that is really ironic because, you know, that's something that I basically hear from both camps of debate on this issue really completely overlooking. You know, I think that the obviously the people who make these careless analogies and careless really is the word for it, you know, they don't bother to really look into anything about the Nazi Holocaust, except they know that a lot of people were killed <laughs> and a lot of Jewish people were killed. And yes, I know we just got to do the animal species side or whatever you want to call it, which is a whole other issue is this question of what do we even call, you know, a, a mass killing of animals? Um, because as I mentioned earlier, prior to the interview, you know, yeah, this word of genocide is very specific to humans, but we don't really even have a term for that. Uh, where animals are concerned. You know, we basically have all these words, you know, with the suffix of side, um, but the only ones that really are used for animals are things like insecticide, uh, pesticide, you know, vermicide, things where we don't even see anything wrong with exterminating them. So going back to uh, this issue of, bre- of breeding, so we have people that are you know, making these very careless analogies, not putting any thought into it, not really looking into what the Nazi Holocaust was all about. And then on the other hand, we have the people that are, um, you know, more concerned about uh, human rights as well as animal rights or how they, uh, you know, intersectional, if you want to call it that, or um, people that are very concerned about hurting people and offending people with these comparisons. And then they kind of just say, well, you know, this is totally different because uh, it's not just different because it's animals versus humans or other animals, I should say, other species versus humans. Um, but it's also different because the Nazi genocide had nothing to do with breeding. Uh, but this is absolutely not true because. And I think this right. is an important point because very few people actually realize this. I didn't. No one is realizing and, it. Yeah, barely yeah, yeah. anyone. Yeah, because I think a lot, a lot of. Uh, a lot of, you know, genocides, um, not just the Holocaust, is just so focused on the fact that we kill, we try to exterminate a group of people, you know. And, you know, in certain instances of other uh, racial, you know, uh, genocides, uh, we have, you know, instances where there's actually a um, uh, something I read about um, in America at one point, even within the last, uh, I think it was like 1950s or onwards for a couple of decades, they were actually um, sterilizing women of color to, you know, it's, as a form of racial cleansing, you know, so, so I think there's a huge focus on that as well. And this is, I think, why people don't really, um, you know, are really kind of, I guess, confronted when we, we hear about, you know, breeding um, operations. Well, and it's very interesting that you bring up the sterilization of women of color because actually that relates directly to the Nazi Holocaust. And it also relates directly to animals, believe it or not, uh, because what happened there, which is really unbelievably disturbing, is that basically this all goes back to Darwinism and then eugenics that came from Darwinism. And all of that directly led to the Nazi Holocaust being inspired by what came out of Darwinism and eugenics. Now, I'm not blaming Darwin for this, but I'm saying that what he observed about animal species and how he felt humanity fit into that influenced these other things, even though I'm not saying that was his intention. 
Um, but basically, when Darwinism came out, it really kind of shook the foundations of everything that Western humans thought they knew about humanity. And again, about this issue that keeps coming up of this human animal divide, because he really was the first one to say, you know, well, humans actually are just another species of animal. And of course, that we evolved from that we are primates and that we evolved from a common ancestor with other primates. And when that happened, that kind of took the lid off of this whole idea of, oh, well, you know, humans are different because, you know, God made us in his image. This whole idea of that was kind of ripped apart. Anthropocentrism, really, it's just focusing on us as being totally separate from the natural world. Right. And this really actually shook the foundation of anthropocentrism. Now, this is something that I have been really looking into a lot because I want anthropocentrism, obviously, to end. I want us to stop being, you know, so egocentric about humanity being so different and special and all the rest. However, at the same time, there is an unbelievable danger in that. Because if you don't do that in a right way where you actually value all life and you care about everyone, you can actually go the Nazi way with that. And it is very interesting because these animal rights activists and especially, you know, the ones that I would call species utilitarians, where they basically kind of say, oh, well, you know, um, it's good when non-vegans die because if they were living, they would be consuming more and more and more animals. And so animals would suffer and die if they lived. You know, a, a famous incident of this that happened that actually got some more media coverage than usual was uh, the woman who ran the vegan food truck um, after the big mass killing in Las Vegas. She basically came out and said that, oh, well, you know, I don't really feel all that sorry about this happening because if they had lived, all these other animals would have died. But this is an ideology that we actually hear in the vegan movement quite a lot. It's not a minor influence. And I hate to say it, but that is actually very much a Nazi ideology. Because if you really look into the Nazis and what they were about, they saw humans as an animal species. This was a big part of their ideology. And again, it came from originally Darwinism and then uh, social Darwinism and eugenics, which was started by Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton. And it was this idea that, well, if we are an animal species, then we can breed for certain traits that we want and we can get rid of other traits that we don't want. And in doing so, we can actually create a better species of human. So actually, it was really all about this idea of blurring the human and animal divide, but in a horrifying way. I'm sorry, what did you say? Yeah, it was just an idea of superior race. It was the Aryan ideal that they um, they pushed. And I think that's actually, like, now that you mention it, it does, uh, you know, I do remember reading about uh, mm-hmm. breeding programs and certain. Right. Um, and, and actually a lot of child um, experimental subjects, uh, medical experimental subjects were tested for, you know, how can we yeah. breed better soldiers, you know. Right. Right. I mean, and, um, you know, so actually it was directly inspired by the eugenics movement in Britain and America. 
you know, something that was very interesting about this was that if you really look into it, and I would really, really strongly recommend everybody listening to this podcast to read Eternal Treblinka, uh, mm. because that book absolutely blew my mind uh, about the deep connections. We're not talking about slapping a meme here together, um, you know, thoughtlessly. We're talking about deep, deep connections, not just an analogy or a parallel, but actually how human attitudes about exploitation of animals and about what we were as a species and what animals are and what our relationship is supposed to be with them directly actually links to the Holocaust, goes directly to the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have to be honest, by the end of that book, I, I went into that book with some skepticism. But by the end of that book, I was convinced that if we did not have mass industrialized slaughter of animals, as happened at the turn of the 20th century, and of course, just animal exploitation in general, the Holocaust might have never happened because that whole system was put in place first to use on animals and then was used on humans. Mm. And this whole idea of breeding. So, you know, you had said that you heard about the um, the breeding being a part of it. So basically, they had this program called Lebensborn, which is wellspring of life is what it meant. And um, it was the counterpart to the extermination of the humans that they didn't want with the traits they didn't want. They had Lebensborn to counteract that, which was the promotion of the birth of the master race. And mm. so what they were going around doing is they were um, offering these really all these incentive programs for women who had the specific Aryan traits that they were looking for to be impregnated by Nazis and to have these children. Now, there are first of all, it was definite that this was happening and uh, that they were offering these incentive packages. And actually, they were doing this a lot in Norway. And something came out about this in the media a little while back because one of the singers of ABBA actually was one of the children that was born of these programs in Norway. And Norway at that time was actually very vulnerable to this because they were in an economic crisis. And this was a way out for a lot of women was to allow Nazis to impregnate them. In many cases, the Nazis then took the babies away from their mothers uh, because they and they would say, oh, well, this is an unfit mother or whatever. And this was to raise their new Aryan nation, Aryan race. Um, there have been rumors for a very long time that there were also issues where they would go into the countries that they were occupying and they would round up women that had the traits that they were looking for and they would actually imprison them and rape them. This has never been confirmed whether this is true. Um, there are a lot of rumors, but from what I was reading, they were saying that the Nazis were very meticulous about kind of their uh, note taking and they never found any confirmation of this. But it is possible that they also may have been going around rounding women up and raping them. But it is definite that they and they would, you know, they would take like unmarried um, women who were pregnant and they would put them in these Nazi, I guess you could say like a nursery where they would have the children and they would, uh, again, in many cases, they would take those children away from the mothers, especially if it was a situation like that. So 
Yeah, I mean, breeding was a huge part of it. Something else I was reading about the breeding is that uh, they were actually encouraging the, so marriage, they didn't care about marriage. Uh, something else that's a misconception about the Nazi Holocaust is that some people think that it had something to do with Christians, you know, being against Jews, but actually they were against Christianity. Uh, they saw Christianity as a competition for fascism and Nazism. They wanted to create a new ideology. And they also saw Christianity, again, very interestingly, as a perversion of nature, because uh, this all goes back to their ideology about nature and animals. And, of course, the third reason they were against Christianity was because they saw it as coming out of Judaism. And, well, we all know that everything that comes out of Judaism is bad. Uh, even Christ, of course, they would say, you know, well, he was a Jew. So um, they were really against Christianity and they didn't believe in any of that. And they were encouraging um, young Germans like in the German youth movement, Nazi youth movement to have sex, you know, without marriage to get pregnant. But they were very, very, very anti-abortion. They completely banned abortion. And, of course, that was because they wanted the babies to create their new master race. So they had that breeding side. And, again, it was all about this idea of humans are animals. Humans are livestock. We want to breed. They actually use the word sire, which is used for breeding horses. We want to sire you know, stallions. We want to sire champion horses. And the Jews and other undesirables were seen as also animals, but vermin that are polluting our livestock. And they saw themselves as predators because they analogize themselves to be like wolves or, um, you know, Hitler in particular had this real obsession with wolves. But they have this fascination with this idea of predators, which makes a lot of sense. You know, for all animals, they're the predators. The German people are their livestock. And the, the Jews and the other uh, undesirables are the vermin. You know, this was like a huge, huge part of their ideology. And one other thing that I want to say about the breeding issue was that on the flip side, of course, <laughs> they were exploiting the prisoners in the concentration camps for their bodies in many ways. But one of the ways was that they had, quote unquote, brothels um, where the Nazis would continuously. Of course, we need a big trigger warning at the beginning of this whole uh, this whole podcast. But, you know, because we're talking about a lot of disturbing things here, but the Nazis would rape the prisoners and sometimes the women, Jewish women, um, or whatever other groups that were there um, would get pregnant. In those cases, it was always abortion. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that you mentioned um, you know, how this dynamic, because like, for me, when um, the whole predator and like, it's a very kind of domestication uh, kind of dynamic that's happening, you know, it reminds me of right. the, the work that David Nivet, um did when he, like, he, like, basically uh, was you know, saying the way that we, you know, we use other, uh, you know, other living beings with the obvious intent of profit and obviously capitalizing them, but also how we, uh, you know, the fact that animal agriculture, like you said, um, and domestication of animals and how we relate it to that um, mm -hmm. selectively, right? Mm -hmm. It's a selective relation to how we use that in order to, um, well, the Nazis use that in order to further a an agenda, or right. the, the political, um, you know, uh, 
you know, gains or agenda. Right. And I mean, you know, this is this is what is so terrifying about kind of just using things to advance your agenda that we really need to be wary of in this movement, especially because, as you said before, we are not the victims of Mm -hmm. the type of oppression that we're talking about. So when you're not the victims and then you're just kind of using whatever is at your disposal or that you think is at your disposal to advance an agenda that can lead in some very, very scary places. Um, I think as, yeah. just with the meme that was um, put forward and you know, with the whole concept of, you know, drawing the differences, you know, even with the context of breeding, I think now, uh, you know, the context of breeding for, you know, during the war was very different, but also not the same as what we have, I guess, in, you know, consuming the individuals, you know, um, in in their flesh. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I was going to speak to that as well, because. Uh, something else I was thinking about with that. Well, first of all, I just want to say um, that in relation to everything else that I was saying, another way that this does actually link to animal agriculture is that all of the original eugenicists and many of the Nazis actually had a background in animal agriculture of one form or another. Um, so, for example, uh, Charles Davenport, who was one of the um, original uh, eugenicists in the U.S., he founded the lab that is now called Cold Springs Harbor in Long Island. That was originally a eugenics lab. He was a chicken researcher and member of the American Breeders Association. His colleague, Harry Laughlin, was a chicken breeding experimenter. Heinrich Himmler also had a background in animal agriculture. Many of the Nazis actually were, um, they had worked in slaughterhouses or they were butchers. And again, these ideas came out of that. So that's a very strong kind of connection there. So something else I wanted to say was you were talking about this issue of, oh boy, I'm trying to think now what I, <laughs> I'm trying to fit a lot of information in here now. Um, I'm sorry, Svetlana, Svetlana, what were you saying before that I was going to respond to? It was something to do with um, the, just the, yeah. the whole domestication, the whole, uh, you know, the herd and sheep kind of, uh, uh, the sheep and the wolf kind of thing, you know, like, you, I know that you mentioned that, for example, um, reading about, you know, the hideouts, that secret headquarters that he had were often named after, you know, uh, wolves or something to do with wolves. Oh, yeah. It was very interesting, the fact that, you know, they felt like they had to put themselves in that role of a predator animal, right. um, which had the authority to destroy and control, you know. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that's also an interesting uh, kind of there's there's definitely a lot of connections between um, you know the ways that speciesism and the way that you know just an exploitation in general of all animals um, you know comes into play here and the way that that has evolved you know um, that for me it's just it's it's really kind of disappointing to see when something so complex um, is decontextualized right. by a meme. Um, yeah. And it's so poorly as well, you know, I mean, it's so careless, it's just very sloppy. Right. right, I mean, it's because it's unbelievably complex. The connection between the Nazis and this whole issue of animalization and our relationship as humans with animals and nature is unbelievably complex. I mean, there are many, many books written about this subject, uh, you know, and um, 
So this issue of predators and um, kind of using that as sort of an excuse or justification for persecuting others. Um, I find that really interesting because, of course, as soon as I heard the word predator, I was thinking about predator drones. You know, I keep going back to thinking about the U.S. is unquestionably the most militaristic culture on Earth, uh, you know, has the biggest militaristic reach. And um, you look at like the animal iconography of the U.S. as well. It's all predators. And that's something that I think is also we don't really talk that much about in the even when we're having these discussions about the human animal divide and how um, marginalized groups of humans are degraded by comparing them to animals, um, we don't talk about the fact that the ones that the humans that are in power positions also, in a way, do compare themselves to animals. But it's always the predator and prey relationship mm. or, on the other hand, the vermin relationship, mm. right? So the ones that are in power, you know, were wolves, were hawks, were eagles, you know, were the great predator animals. And then, of course, the humans that are marginalized, oppressed, degraded, oh, they're the pigs and they're the cows and they're the, and of course, with apes, that's us trying to assert our superiority that, oh, well, you know, we're not, we're not really animals. We're not primates. Um, but, you know, there's always the, the, those other people are the ones that send it from primates. But there is, and then on the vermin side, that's where you get things like the Nazi Holocaust of, oh, we have to kill all the Jews. We have to kill all the LGBT people. We have to kill all the disabled people because they're the vermin and they're polluting our species and our livestock. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you get Native Americans. Oh, they're vermin. You know, they're like we're we're overrun with, you know, like these wild vermin animals. We have to kill them. Um, but there's mm-hmm. animalization at every step of the way. And the Nazis were a very extreme example of that. But actually, I see that really far beyond Nazism. And I, I think that's really interesting tonight because, you know, for example, when I when, you know, framed like it was with uh, in the context that Carol J. Adams was explaining, you know, the humanized human Sometimes, you know, in itself, when humans like to animalize themselves as a form of power, you know, as a form right. of you know, changing the narrative, you know, exactly. it's, uh, it's very concerning. But also, like, it's, it's a tool of manipulation, you know, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hi. So, uh, hi, everyone. And um, I couldn't believe that you were very critical of uh, Hitler there, Laura. Don't you know that he was a vegetarian? What's the matter with you? Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, you really want to start me on that subject? Because I've got a whole rant on that, too. No, no, no. That, that, <laughs> and that, probably that. not one that many people are familiar with, yeah. Uh, no, that, that's, um, that's not what I wanted to go, go to, to be honest. But, um, I, I, so this has been a fascinating discussion so far. and It's obviously covered a, a lot of ground, which we can't really um, do justice to. But um, I just wanted to clarify something that Laura said. And then after Carolyn mentions the phone call, I wanted to, to talk to Svetlana about uh, the definitional is- issues that she, she brought up. So with, with Laura, when you were first talking about the breeding issue, mm-hmm. it sounded as though you were suggesting that on a technical level, and nothing to do with whether it should be used or not, but on a, on a technical level, that would make the analogy stronger. In, in the sense that a lot of people say, well, you know, one of the main problems with the analogy is the fact that the Nazis were trying to eradicate the Jews and they, they weren't breeding them to be exploited. And then you mentioned the um, Laban's born. I think that's 
what right. you said. Yeah. Now, and then, and then you were talking about the breeding of the master race, but th- that wouldn't have been with Jews, though, would it? So no, um, no. It That's... is different in the sense that it was split. Um, so there is a breeding element to it, but it was not with the one and the same, um, person. So that obviously is different. So in, in that sense, there's a real kind of important nuance there because I, I was, I was wondering yeah. about, because obviously the, um, you know, the, the famous, um, freezing experiments and the experiments with twins. I mean, I don't know w- whether the Nazis bred those twins or whether they just found, uh, oh, Jew- yeah. Jewish, Jewish mothers who had them, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I know they were seeking out twins. Um, I don't know that they were a- actually able to breed them. I don't think they had the science to do that at that time, but they were definitely seeking out twins for uh, experiments. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because AFCO talks a lot about this, and I think that this is very relevant to what you just brought up, which is that in this sort of animal rights activism that makes these sort of careless analogies. There's always this obsessive focus on the victims and you never see the victimizers. You, it's always decontextualized where you don't see the victimizers, you don't see the oppressors and you just see these images of victims and then they're comparing victims. Um, and so, yeah, if you're making, if you're looking at it that way, you're right. There's no comparison there. But if you look at the bigger picture where you actually include the oppressor race, there is a bigger there is then a much more comprehensive idea of how this relates to animal agriculture, because then you do see the breeding side of it. But the breeding side wasn't happened with the ones that were now I'm I would not say that the women that were being used in this way were not oppressed or exploited. They obviously were, but they were part of the oppressor race uh they were part of this you know aryan construct or whatever you want to call it and in that sense that's something that is just cut out of the lens of what we see when we see here's some jews in a concentration camp and here's some animals and isn't this the same or you know the same sort of syndrome. But if you look at it much more comprehensively, then you will see that there was a breeding aspect to it as well. And that there, the animalization went much, much further than just the Jews or just the people in the concentration camps that it extended actually to the entire society of Germany and beyond. Yeah. Yeah. A point taken, Mm -hmm. but um, the general point then just to kind of nail this one on the head as it were, is Mm -hmm. that, um, what you were saying about breeding doesn't actually support the analogy at all because it's still the case that they were trying to eradicate the Jews. They were breeding, but not Jews, right? Right, right. So my answer to that is I think that these analogies, uh, we shouldn't be doing analogies. And the reason why we shouldn't be doing analogies is because when you put it in terms of an analogy, I do think we should be looking at the connection between these two issues. But there is a way of looking at that connection without making an analogy, because when you make an analogy, then it just, you know, then it becomes hurtful and offensive. But also you're missing an opportunity to actually say, you know, if we look at these two issues and how they interconnect, we can actually see how our attitudes towards and actions towards animals it wasn't just that it was like what we did to humans. It was that it directly led to what we were, what we did to humans. And so therefore we need to be 
seeing this as an opportunity, looking at animal oppression as an opportunity to better understand human oppression and why it happens. I think that's such an important point as well. I think, you know, when you compare things like that so carelessly, um, you know, in the in like these images that float around the internet, you know, that apart from being totally reductive in their in their in a way that they portray both instances of both atrocities, but uh, in the fact that they actually erase a lot of the important points that we need to look at, they decontextualize right. first and completely reframe, but also okay. they cancel out any important discussions that really need to have need to be had about you know ha- like the roots and also the connections between, um, you know, human and non-human oppression and um, and how, you know, without doing so, without looking at all these really um, delicate and really, like, complex um, connections and intersections, you know, I think it's it's hindering and it's actually, um, you know, it's a blockage to the way that we can actually work towards, you know, addressing these problems. Mm-hmm. Thanks for both of you for that. And so one of the issues that I want to raise is about, you know, what might be one of the most important things uh, here, which is the thing that uh, Svetlana kind of touched on, which was the definition uh, in in relation to that. And so I thought, you know, Carolyn, perhaps you will uh, give us an account of your phone call first. And then after uh, Svetlana talks about that, then maybe we can develop the point. Yeah, absolutely. Yesterday I spoke with the Executive Director of the Executive Council of Australian Jury on the phone in preparation for this interview. The reason that I called him and wanted to speak with him and get his opinion and his position on the issue of the analogies is that Svetlana mentioned earlier that um, every now and then we see different videos or the same videos or blog posts doing the rounds and there's one that's doing the rounds at the moment it's a video of a holocaust survivor himself Mm -hmm. speaking about he speaks about the similarities between the two he doesn't make analogies and he doesn't compare he just speaks about the similarities but the problem with that as i see it this week has been People like me who have no direct association with the Nazi Holocaust are using this video to justify their own use of really careless comparisons mm-hmm. and analogies. And the person speaking in this video, does not he doesn't do that. So I wanted to get the opinion of the council. So I, I spoke with this guy yesterday. And as a representative council for Jewish people all around Australia, he said that they deplore the inappropriate use of analogies of the Nazi genocide and Nazi tyranny in public debate. But he said not only by animal people, but as a general matter, because other people of people of different oppressed groups are using it as well. He said that the Nazi program of genocide was a unique historical event and any any comparisons are deeply offensive. The point one of well one of the points I want to make in regard to, to advocacy and using the comparisons is that it seems careless and irresponsible to use a seven minute video of one person on the other side of the planet speaking about similarities to justify our use of the comparisons and to completely ignore and silence people who do have a direct association with the Nazi Holocaust who are saying that they're offended by it. Mm. And I, I think as well the issue is just, like I mentioned before, not with um, 
not just with, you know, kind of the way we advocate for veganism, you know, is by, you know, silencing the people who feel this trauma and, you know, don't want that comparison to be made in out of, you know, lack of context. But also the fact that um, I think, you know, every single genocide that happened um, in history, uh, you know, in my perspective, stands in its own merit, you know, and it stands on its own ground. And the fact that, you know, the experiences of the individuals are their experiences in their own uh, in their own rights. So um, I think, you know, the Holocaust with a capital H has been, uh, you know, used to describe. Um, and I mean, you, you know, not that Google is the be end and, you know, of everything, but like, uh, the be all of everything, but you know, you go Google Holocaust in, in you know, genocide doesn't just pop up as a terminology that kind of interrelates or like you know, uh, is used interchangeably, um, with the Holocaust. It's it's specifically pointing to a specific time in our history, um, uh, for a specific you know, victims or group of people, and um, you know, it, I think there's a problematic um, component there with language. You know, and, you know, people using the justification of the meaning of a word to try to justify, you know, their own use of it and their own agenda. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. So I want to respond to uh, this whole idea of, you know, it's offensive to compare the Nazi Holocaust to other uh, even examples of human genocide, let alone what we do to non-humans. Um Honestly, I think it it comes back to what I was just saying before, again, which is this issue of comparisons. Not helpful. That's not what we should be aiming for. What we should be aiming for is what can we learn about these things that have happened in history, including the Nazi Holocaust? What can that teach us about other human atrocities? I mean, we say never again. It's like, you know, we don't want this to happen again. And guess what? In many ways, it is happening again. So should we not be able to look at the Holocaust, the Nazi Holocaust, and say, oh, you know, now we understand more deeply how these things happen, how genocide happens because of this specific example of genocide? How can we apply what we learned from the Nazi Holocaust so that it doesn't happen again? Mm, mm. It just seems like how can we say, oh, we can't look at that. We're just supposed to, what, ossify it in a memorial and never touch it and never look at it. We're not learning the lessons that it has to teach us then. So, yeah, I mean, but there's a difference between that and then making a a comparison. And I think, well, people who are oppressive, they want to, um, they want people not to look at these uh, lessons, you know, because, end of the day, it's not the people who are in a position of power who benefit from this kind of narratives of, you know, fascism, for example, and, you know, the rise of the alt-right um, that we see at the moment in, you yeah. know, in the current political climate. But, um, you know, they, you know, they push that narrative of carelessness and the fact that, you know, the superiority, etc. you know, we've got all these narratives that are floating around um, who of people who particularly don't want to look uh, and be compared to this particular time in history because they know that the similarities are there no, no right. matter, you know, it, it's like you said, learning, not exactly saying, you know, this is, this is exactly the same. but Or even like you know, it. You know, yeah. even if it's not exactly the same, well, this is like that. That's just, that's not helpful and it's not the point. The point is what does this thing that happened have to teach us about things that are happening 
today. And that goes for all of history. I mean, that's, you know, and you make such a good point there, which is that actually it serves the oppressors to not look at history. So why would we want to do that? Mm. The last thing we want to do is shut down history. And so, well, we can't look at that. We can't touch that. You know, we can't think about that in relation in relation to what's happening today because, you know, that was then and that was that. That completely serves the oppressor's agenda. We were in a difficult area of language, I think. That, and um, I think, just to interrupt you there, Roger, I think, you know, language can be oppressive or can be liberating in a sense as well. You know, I think the language has holds so much power, you know, and when people use it carelessly, you know, um, it's it, it can have a lot of, you know, consequences which either intended or not, uh, or sometimes purposeful, you know, uh, can be quite dangerous, you know, and um, I think language should be definitely always a mindful um, action, you know, that we as activists use, you know, it's something that is a tool um, and, you know, in these comparisons, you know, it can be quite detrimental, I think. I totally agree with that. In fact, I've done a lot of writing about um, language within the, the movement. But if, and this is where we're in, in a difficult area here, because if we follow the suggestion made by the representative in Australia, then the entire word Holocaust has got to be reserved only for the one thing, which is the Nazi Holocaust. And in fact, from what uh, the guy said, I think he would even think that was an insulting thing to say because he would just say the Holocaust. It was a unique event. There wasn't any Holocaust before, and there can't be any after. So this is a difficult area, isn't it? Um, I think, you know, when it, when you, we talk about the Holocaust and, you know, comparisons in language, I think, you know, something that was claimed by, you know, a specific group of people, like the Jewish Holocaust, you know, was, um, you know, or, you know, it, it attributed to a group of people who were victimized by the Nazis. And I think the whole notion that it can't be used interchangeably, I mean, you can look at it from both ways, but, you know, it's problematic sometimes if you do and problematic if, you know, if you don't. But language can be quite conflicting at times. And I think, you know, I think we mentioned this before the um, the start of the interview the, before the podcast that, you know, a certain, um, you know, white groups of people, you know, give names to certain periods of time and they name things based on, you know, by that name but a lot of things like for example laura mentioned you know what happens to animals species side doesn't i mean i'm not sure if that quite covers it you know so we've got all these problems with the way that we actually attribute names and to certain historic event and you know whether that's colonized even you know um i think that's an important kind of point to to explore um so i really wanted to uh respond to the reaction of uh, the Australian representative um, on this issue. I wanted to say that basically when animal rights activists make these sorts of careless analogies, they basically make it a lot harder for those of us who are trying to do this in a serious way to be able to do that. They make it really impossible for us to speak to those connections in a meaningful way uh, that we can actually learn from, of course, not just about the oppression of other species, but also about human oppression and how human oppression relates to our relationship with other species. But when they make these careless comparisons, 
they make it very hard for us to be able to do that because what ends up happening is that because it's so hurtful and it's so offensive, there's just this sort of like shutdown effect. And then people are like, well, you know what? Don't even speak about the Holocaust at all <laughs> because you're going to screw it up and you're going <laughs> to hurt somebody when you do it. So just nobody gets to speak about that. Nobody gets to look at that. And it becomes this like ossified thing that nobody can touch and nobody can go near and nobody can learn from. And that is a very natural human reaction to it being exploited. Yes. Right. So it's understandable why people would end up feeling that way. Now, another thing I want to bring up is that there is number one, anti-Semitism in the animal rights movement. And number two, just rampant human oppression in general, attitudes of human oppression. I've spoken about this a lot before, obviously, in the animal rights movement. So somebody who might have been more open to hearing about how these things interconnect, again, it will be that shutdown effect of like, well, you people don't care about human rights. You don't care about Jews, you know? Um, so why should we be open to hearing from you about this? We're not going to be. And it's just yeah. this like extreme distrust that happens so again, they they not only do they not end up accomplishing their goal, they end up doing so much more damage and they actually end up ruining it where we could be actually learning something from these lessons that they do have something to teach us. But no one is open to hearing that anymore because of what's been done with exploiting it. Mm. And I think as yeah, well, you know, when we do have, you know, um, respectful and conscious, mindful activism and we do it, you know, in the right way, we end up actually attracting other individuals from other movements, you know, and who right. can make those connections. Exactly. And the movement grows stronger. We, like, you know, look exactly. at, for example, Collectively Free um, yep. in yep. the US, you know, they've got support from the LGBT community in New York, you know, and that's a huge right. thing, you know. And I think looking at, you know, the way that we can be inclusive and respectful and strive towards all justice, I mean, I just don't understand how people and animal activists can be against this, you know? I just, it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a really good way to end the podcast, actually. But yeah. I would like, I'd like to ask both of you if there was one message you could leave, one thing you could say to animal advocates who insist on using these analogies and insist on using advocacy in general that is likely to turn a lot of people away. What message would you send? Well, obviously, the first thing I would say is you're doing much more harm than good. You are turning a lot of people off to this issue. And again, as I said before, you're you're closing people's minds to hearing about these interconnections. You're not opening them. You're closing them. Can't stress that enough. Mm. Um, something that I want to talk about, I want to address is this issue of is it just speciesism is that really at the root of it of why people have these negative reactions is it really just speciesism i have thought about this a lot because actually when i first when i first came into this movement i was a little more open-minded of you know because i always am the sort of person who wants to look at interconnections and parallels and you know how do these things relate to each other and so when i first came into this movement you know my first thought was oh well you know if it's obviously if it's done disrespectfully or if there's a lack of respect for human rights, 
and you're just kind of centering and promoting animal rights and you don't care about human rights, then obviously people are going to have a negative reaction. But what I've noticed as I've been in this movement is that people have a negative reaction, even in a lot of cases when it is done from the context of, you know, I care about human rights and I care about animal rights. They still have a negative reaction to any sort of connecting human rights issues to animal rights issues. And so I really had to think about that because I did keep feeling like, you know, at the back of my mind, is it speciesism at the end of the day? Is there an aspect of speciesism that's influencing this? And of course, you know, I started learning more about the animalization of humans and how that is used as a tool to rationalize and justify their oppression. And so, of course, you know, I, I understood more and more. Um, but eventually what I realized was that when we ask the question of is it speciesism that is causing people to have these negative reactions, in a way, you could obviously say no, but what I really came to the realization of was I think we're asking the wrong question. It's not a question of whether it's speciesism or not, because what we really need to be asking ourselves is whose speciesism is this? Because it's not the victim's speciesism. The person that's having that bad reaction because they feel like you're animalizing them it's not their speciesism. It's the speciesism that has been imposed upon them by the oppressors. Mm, mm. So we need to stop asking this question, is it speciesism or not? Yes, it's speciesism, but it's not the victim's speciesism. It's the oppressor's speciesism making that person feel like, A, they are some kind of an animal, they're not human, and B, that animals are something lesser to be. Mm. Because if you look at many cultures around the world that were animalized by colonialism, that were animalized by white supremacy, etc. They didn't have speciesist attitudes about other animals. That doesn't come from them. It comes from being told by their oppressor, animals are lesser and you are one. Mm. So we need to stop asking this question, is it speciesism? And we need to start asking this question, whose speciesism is it? Because when you say it's the victim speciesism, you're blaming the victims. That's victim blaming. So stop asking that question and start thinking about it in a different way. That's my last message. That was very well said. And I think great timing because I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, I think, with the whole, you know, putting the animals first and, you know, it's all for the animals. I think a lot of people uh, in the movement, a lot of vegans have this kind of element of misanthropism, you know, um, yeah. and, <laughs> And it's almost like, you know, they have this disdain to anything to do with human. And it's like, no, no, we can't look at that because they're the oppressor. But it's, it, that's such a really reductive way of looking at things. And I think as well, you know, there's a lot of ego that comes into it, you know, because there's a, a lot of people that say, no, your species, and they call, you know, anyone that wants to raise these issues with making comparisons, no, your species, like you said, they're actually pointing out the species reinforced by usually themselves, if they're not part of that oppressive group, you know, you know, not themselves as per se individually, you know, but collectively. And I think we sh the blame needs to stop. We should stop blaming minorities 
for their own oppression and you know and the fact that some minorities might actually not want to look at the um, you know the links between uh, the oppression of non-human and human animals and uh, I think my takeaway message is you know <laughs> don't be misanthropist you know I think stop stop coming at you know activism with ego and this notion that you know we all um, have this uh, this idea that humans are the ones that are uh, all humans are bad, you know, or complicit, you know, and equally oh, except responsible. Except vegans, of course. Except vegans, yeah. of course. Of vegans course. Are perfect. <laughs> of course, yeah. yeah. And that we're all equally responsible because that's not true, you know. And uh, yeah, that would be my uh, takeaway message from today, I think. Actually, I want to respond to that if it's okay, um, because I didn't really get a chance to talk about this in this interview. But that rumor about Hitler being a vegetarian, um, yes, he wasn't really a vegetarian, but there's a reason why that rumor has persisted. And it isn't just about his eating habits. It's about the fact that and this is really sick and disturbing. But if you really look into uh, the Nazi party, they were big animal welfareists <laughs> and um, they had like conferences on animal rights issues and they had all kinds of laws regulating um, the treatment of animals. And they, you know, if you were just looking at it again, decontextualized, they were the most progressive government, you know, of their time in the West on animal rights issues. And so a lot of people have said, well, how could they care about animal rights and not care about human rights? What it is, is that they were actually I'm sorry to say it, using a rationale that we see very commonly in the animal rights movement today, which is, oh, well, those people are animal abusers, so we have to kill them because mm -hmm. they continue living. They will continue torturing animals and killing animals. Vivisectionists are Jews. Um, look at the way they kill, you know, kosher killing. This is a rationale that we hear all the time in the animal rights movement today. and It is the rationale that the Nazis used. So we need to look at our selves as well in terms of how do we relate to the Nazis and what can we learn about our own movement from the Nazi Holocaust because there was an awful lot of that going around as well so yeah this misanthropy directly stems from all of those things I was talking about earlier about social Darwinism about eugenics even Nazism there are echoes of that in all of this sort of very exterminationist rhetoric that is coming from the misanthropy, misanthropic uh, wing of this movement. Thanks, Laura. I want to thank both of you, Laura and Svetlana, for giving us your time today. Really appreciate your contribution to a really important discussion. And I'd also thank like to thank, thank both of you for everything that you continue to do. You're making such a difference. You give your time and your energy to the movement and to the cause of other animals. And I really want to thank you for that. Thank you so much. I really appreciated having the chance to talk about these issues. Thanks Absolutely. so much, Caroline. And I, I just want to say thank you to Laura because she added so much to the discussion. And, um, you know, I think it's so important to continue having these discussions in a, a really uh, respectful way, obviously, but also, you know, you know, with accountability. I think right. because that's something I see lacking a lot with, you know, the ego kind of white-led movements that we have currently in the uh, spotlight in the mainstream vegan community, you know? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for that. No member of the animal kingdom. Ever did a thing to me.